Before we get started on this week's episode, I want to make a short announcement. The ABA is hosting a drawing for birders who join the ABA or renew their membership in the month of April 2017. The prize this time around comes from Brian Pattison and Seabirding Pelagics out of Hatteras, North Carolina. The winner will receive two free spots on a date of their choice on the world-famous Stormy Petrel 2 on a trip out to the Gulf Stream. The birding out there is spectacular, and Brian's trips are world-class. So if you are interested, be sure to join the ABA or renew your membership before April 30th. You can do that at aba.org join. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I am really excited about this episode because we are going to do a dive into the recent taxonomic proposals from the American Ornithological Society that could lead to splits and lumps and changes in your life list, and maybe, if you're lucky, a few armchair ticks. Uh, I'll provide a little background here. I talked a bit about the AOS proposals in an earlier episode, that's 0103 if you were interested in going back. Uh, But the short of it is that the AOS is the big professional academic organization for bird scientists in the Americas. They maintain a taxonomic classification committee that makes decisions based on the latest bird science and proposals made by interested parties. Uh, Those parties might be researchers who are actually doing the work. Uh, They might be hobby birders with an interest and the requisite knowledge about a given topic. Uh, But those proposals are kicked up to this committee of volunteer ornithologists who make them public, and we absolutely thank them for that, and uh, they vote on them every year. I always find it sort of interesting how those of us who are not necessarily bird researchers uh, have such an interest in the decisions that are made here. They certainly affect the lists that we keep, but I'd like to think that we're sort of interested in this stuff just for knowledge's sake. Uh, And one of the things that I love most about birding is that there is so much overlap between researchers, scientists doing this cutting-edge work on bird taxonomy, and those of us whose interest in birds is is primarily avocational. Uh, It goes both ways, too. Uh, Not only are we benefiting from this system that the AOS oversees, but the birders themselves are and have been for decades, providing so much raw data on bird populations through submissions to eBird, through BBS routes, Christmas bird counts, spring bird counts, and even with taxonomy, birders are quite good at documenting subspecies limits and documenting hybrids, changing species distribution in real time, uh, vagrants, which we obviously all love here. Uh, Ornithology is one of those very few sciences where amateurs, by which I mean non-professional people, are so invested and off the top of my head, astronomy is is really the only other science I can think of where non-professionals often make sort of significant discoveries. You don't see too many amateur theoretical physicists with homemade particle accelerators in their backyard. And if television has taught me anything, it's that hobby chemistry only leads to bad outcomes with law enforcement, even if for a while you're running your own super lab in the basement of an industrial laundromat. Anyway, we're talking splits and lumps today. In the last segment, Ted Floyd and Greg Neese are joined by goal aficionado Amara Yash to talk about the Thayer's Iceland goal potential lump. Don't say they didn't warn you that they do goals eventually. Uh, but first, I talked to biologist and friend of the ABA, Nick Block, about this year's proposals. Maybe afterwards you'll be able to pencil in some of those armchair ticks. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of April 2017. 
South Florida was hot, and I don't just mean that in the meteorological sense. On three consecutive days in early April, birders found Caribbean rarities in Miami-Dade and down into the Florida Keys. The first was a Cuban peewee at Bill Bag State Park near Miami Beach. This is about the sixth record for the ABA. The very next day, a loggerhead kingbird was found and photographed west of the city of Miami. Interestingly, this is likely a bird from the Bahamas and likely a first record of the Bahamensis subspecies. All other loggerhead kingbird records in the ABA area have been in the Keys and likely from Cuba, the Cuban subspecies. And then the day after that, a Cuban vireo was found in Key West, not far from where the ABA's first record of that species was discovered at around this time last year. There was a little speculation that this might have been the same individual that just went off and hid for 10 months before turning up again, uh, notably when they start making noise again, start singing again. Hard to say on that front, though it is a little odd that the ABA's first and second records would occur in consecutive years uh, in the same place, but stranger things have happened. In the last week, a western spindalis was also found in Miami, so South Florida looks to continue to produce great birds, as it so often does this time of year. One first record to report from Newfoundland, where a yellow-billed loon at Trepassy on the Avalon Peninsula represents a provincial first and one of only very few records on the Atlantic coast. In the days before that bird was discovered, the province had exceptional numbers of common loons along the coast, likely following an unprecedented movement of pack ice southward along the coast of Newfoundland. The bird was among those common loons. That's just a small taste of the whole rarity outlook for a full account. Head to the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. And for updated information on these and other rare birds, please join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. My guest Nick Block is a professor of biology at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts. He's also the secretary of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee, so he had, definitely has an interest in all matters concerning splits and lumps in the ABA area. We're going to lean on him a little bit as a resident ornithologist to help break down some of this year's taxonomy proposals for the consideration by the AOS, the American Ornithological Society's North and Middle American Classification Committee. Thanks for talking with me, Nick. Uh, thanks, Nate. I uh, appreciate the chance to talk to you. So we'll, we'll kind of run into these these proposals that have been submitted this year. Uh, I think probably the most the highest profile one is the yellow rumped warbler split. Those were two species that were for a very long time considered two two separate species, Audubon's in the west and myrtle warbler in the east. And then in the seventies they were lumped into one species despite their you know obvious plumage differences. And it looks like this year there's a good chance that they're going to be split again. Uh, so what research is informing this decision to split again, and, and how has our understanding of this particular species or species pair changed from when they were originally lumped? Right. So I maybe we should, we should start back when they were lumped. So I think it was 1973 or something like that. They were lumped because they do hybridize. Um, you know, the Myrtle and Audubon's subspecies hybridize in the Canadian Rockies. And, you know, birders you know, lots of birders probably have seen those intermediate birds that kind of have a little yellow on the throat, but have some little like characteristics, right? And so in the 70s and around that time, the the checklist committee was pretty conservative when it came to lumping things um, in, in that, or I should say in splitting things, and that if there was any hybridization at all, they tended to favor lumping them. So things like Baltimore and Bullock's Oriole, right, were lumped as northern Orioles. Yes, and the flickers as well. Yeah, yeah, spotted and rufous-sided toys, you know, this kind of stuff, right? 
And a lot of those have been re-split based on data showing that even though they do hybridize, it's a very small amount. And that's in, in the big picture, they act like different species. So the hybrids are, are not very you know, fit or, or there just aren't that many. But Myrtle and Audubon's, unlike some of these others that were re-split, like Bullocks and, and Baltimore Oriole, have not been re-split. And some of that is because the committee has gotten a little more conservative about splitting. They're, they're always now wanting to see more research come out to get the full picture before they make any decisions, which is, you know, honestly a good way to make taxonomic decisions. Um, and anyway, so the, there have been a number of studies in the last decade that have come out showing, for the most part, that Audubon's and Myrtle act very differently, um, you know, that they are separated genetically by quite a bit, and that any hybrids are only found in this really narrow area. So the hybrid zone is really small. Um, there's not much like gene flow between the two species, which would suggest that they're not really isolated and they aren't really acting like different species. Right. So even even in that area where they uh, overlap, they're still you know segregating themselves more or less. The, well, the weird thing is they're they're not, and 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 this is part of why they've stayed lumped is that in that little narrow zone, there seems to be little evidence of them actually staying separate. Like they will hybridize pretty readily in that zone, but only in that really narrow zone. And often what that could mean is that really it's one species. But as it turns out, as papers have come out and kind of showing this is that really what happens is that Audubon, pure Audubons and pure Myrtle Warblers are great, but their hybrids, for whatever reason, the, the mechanism we don't know, don't do very well. So their hybrids are not as you know healthy or fit, however you want to say it, as either their of their pure parents. So basically, the hybrids go; it doesn't go anywhere. It's like a dead end. And so that was evidence that was used to propose a split, but it still wasn't split. I think it was 2010, maybe, when the the previous proposal to split them came up. And some of that was because there wasn't; they wanted more genetic data, and they also wanted more data from the other subspecies, yellow-rumped warblers. Okay. Yeah, the ones from Middle America. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in northern Mexico, there's um, black-fronted warbler, um, and down in Guatemala is Goldman's warbler, and so they wanted more data from those because, like I said, they they tend to take a pretty conservative um, view on changes these days, and that they want the the full picture. So they could say yellow-rumped and Audubon's act like different species, but what about the others? Let's not make any decisions until we know the whole picture. So now, based on a paper that came out last year, that whole picture seems to be pretty clear, or at least getting clearer, um, to the point where, I mean, I, honestly, I'd be surprised if they're not split at this point. So they're using advanced DNA sequencing techniques that now can yield thousands and thousands of kind of mutations that might tell us differences between the groups instead of just a handful of genes. That, that sort of leads me to my next question. So uh, when you read these proposals, they're, they're very, you know, science heavy, um, a lot of, a lot of jargon. And some of that jargon is the kind of DNA that they're looking at when they run yeah. these, when they run these tests, what exactly are they looking for or looking at when they're making these decisions? Yeah. So it, it varies. Um, and in the past, you know, what would often people would sequence and still currently is, is um, mitochondrial DNA. So mitochondrial DNA is a small ring of DNA 
that's found in every mitochondrion, which is, you know, the organelle that's the powerhouse of our cells, right? Going back to middle school science there. Exactly, bio 101. (laughs) Um, But the idea is it has a separate ring of DNA and different from the rest of our nuclear DNA. And the reason that was really popular sequence is that it's very easy to work with. Um, We have tons of mitochondria, right? Um, And it has a pretty fast mutation rate, which means that the DNA will change pretty quickly compared to another population. So a population doesn't have to be separate for very long before you see, you know, genetic changes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And so that was, that was a really popular, you know, version of, of, um, getting genetic data. Um, but it led to some kind of bad taxonomic decisions because ultimately, Mitochondrial DNA is essentially just one gene, right? One one ring of genes. So making a decision just on mitochondrial DNA could lead to a wrong taxonomic decision, one that doesn't really, really reflect what's going on. Jumping the gun a little bit, as it were. Yeah. And so now, you know, it, it, people look um, more and more at nuclear DNA as well as mitochondrial DNA. And in general, it tends to be the approach of the committee, or at least my impression is that they will not make changes if mitochondrial DNA is the only line about. And so with the, like the yellow brown warbler, they now are looking at thousands and thousands of genes within the nuclear DNA. If you get thousands and thousands of genes to look at, eventually you find those mutations that have happened and can give you information. So that that's now what we have is with this new sequencing technology, we can get these thousands of markers and give us a much clearer picture. You know, not always perfect, but a much clearer picture of what's really going on in terms of hybridization and, um, you know, gene flow between potential species. In addition to the, the a lot of the split, there are some lumps as well. And perhaps probably the most notable one is the lump of common and hoary red pole. It's back for a second year. Uh, do you think that the AOS is going to lump these two this time? And uh, what is the research they're looking at to make that decision? How does it how does it differ from the research they're looking at to make the splits? So you know, I don't I don't know what they're going to do. I if I were voting, I would vote to lump them. Um, and I, I've been saying that ever since the paper in 2015 came out that kind of showed that there were no strong genetic differences between the two, and that their phenotypes, you know, the how they look kind of represents really a cline. Um, and right, gradual shift. Yeah, and that there's no, like, there are specimens where if you don't have the label, you can say, you know, you could have one person put it in common and one person put it in ori. When you can't tell them apart, then even if maybe they're acting like two species currently, there's enough hybridization or gene flow going on between them to keep them from being completely distinct. So... It's not that, you know, some people who are really liberal with their species concepts might say, well, you know, they're still still two like main phenotypic clusters. Like these mostly look like common, these mostly look like horse. Um, and so they should be separate. But that I think just wouldn't line up with how the AOS is making decisions based on some other things that remain split or, or things that they don't agree to split. Uh, who knows? Who knows? The issue with the original proposal is that, um, you know, showing the genetic differences is that there were no samples from Greenland, uh, which have some of the palest horries and the darkest commons. 
some of the new information they added was um, from studies from, I think it was 1950 or something, actually showing that those two extremes, the palest ones and the darkest ones from common and the palest horries, actually hybridize in where they overlap. Even the ones that look the most different are hybridizing. And people have been collected. One of the studies said that a pair in copulation was collected <laughs> up, and they were they came from the two different groups. So based on that information, even though they don't have the genetics of them, they they show that just behavioral observations have shown they do hybridize, even at the extreme phenotypes. So how can you treat that as two species, basically? Where do you, you can't, there's no, there's no line. Where do you draw the line between them? So just lump them back together. And, you know, I'll lose a lifer if they do it. Obviously, a lot of people will, but, and, and birders don't like that aspect of it. But in terms of, the committee and, and, and kind of the species definitions they're using being consistent, I, I find it hard to argue that they should stay split. It's a still really interesting group to keep track of. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's eBird will probably, you know, they would, eBird would maintain categories. You know, you can still track which ones are where in case more information down the line shows maybe they really are different. I mean, I don't see that happening, but you never know. So it's not, it's not like, you know, maybe some people might stop paying attention, but you get one of those big, beautiful Greenland, you know, hoary quote unquote red poles at your feeder in the Northeast. That's still a really, really neat bird, regardless of what they call yeah, it. Exactly. Exactly. People still get excited about just subspecies, you know, it's t- even more now than still, ever. You know, it's like if you get an Oregon junco here in New England, like people still get excited Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. So, so uh, looking at over the, the proposals that have been that have been submitted, uh, what splits do you think that ABA birders can probably look forward to this summer? Um, let's see. So I, I might not remember all of these off the top of my head, but um, I, I, I the Willet split, I'd be shocked if that didn't go through. Um, I do think the L rums will be split. Um, the, one of the decisions I'm really looking forward to is whether or not they're going to split the South Hills crossbill. The previous time a proposal was put in um, a few years ago, it was rejected. And they're putting in a new proposal, largely based on a paper that came out last year, that again, similar to the yellow rump, is now looking at a huge level of genomic information. And so it gives us a much clearer picture of what's going on. And it's really cool. And it's it actually, I, I didn't expect this from this paper. It basically shows that all these call types, you know, so everyone is interested in keeping track of all types. There's very little genetic difference among them, except for the South Hills bird. So even though the South Hills birds overlap at times with type two and five, I think, they still seem to be maintaining you know, their own reproductive isolation. They're acting like a good species. They're currently not breeding at an appreciable level with any other type. And they're also sedentary, which is quite different from most of the types. And um, and they showed that even with the increased level of genetic data, South Hills are still their own little cluster. Um, I, I think they make a pretty strong case in the proposal, but this is one of those things where it's like, man, they still, they look super similar. They don't sound that different, you know. I really like the South Hills crossbow. It's a scientific name is the Sinscurus. Yeah. Uh, without squirrels, yes. Latin for without squirrels. So it's like, it's it's the little patch of habitat in the South Hills and Cassiar County, uh, Idaho is uh, 
does not have any red squirrels there, which is unique to the other crossbills, which I think is just really kind of a neat little natural history tidbit for that one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really interesting, like some of the papers that have come out on it and, and like this interplay between the lodgepole pines and the crossbills and how without the squirrels, the coevolution between the pines and the crossbills is so different. It's, re- it's a really cool stuff. You know, there are a couple other splits mentioned in the proposals. Belzevirio, I honestly, I don't know what to make of that. I, I didn't read as much about that. I don't, my impression is that it wouldn't necessarily go through. Um, Nashville warblers being um, considered for splits, but, you know, going back to what I was talking about with mitochondrial DNA, that proposal is based primarily on just mitochondrial DNA. And so, yeah, sure, they might be different, but I do not think that they'll get split based on this proposal. So um, another one is Brown Creeper. Brown Creeper, that's yeah, right. I and I remember seeing the, the first poster at an AOU meeting a few years ago on this and being convinced back then that there are multiple species here. And, you know, again, I don't know if they'll split them, how many groups you really cluster them into. It seems to be a little subjective, but I... I think they make, again, I think they make a good case. I think there's a good chance that brown creep could be split into two species. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a neat one. Uh, the common name suggestions for that one, Nearctic and Neotropical Creeper, are a little brutal, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I think the committee actually puts in like a little note yeah. about how they might reconsider the common name. It'd be nice to switch them over to a Tree Creeper, I think, because the, the other Certhias yeah. uh, on the, you know, in, in Eurasia are all Tree Creepers. Our brown creeper is the only one that's not, so it'd be... Maybe nice to make it consistent there. I agree. Well, uh, Nick, I really appreciate you uh, speaking with us on this. Nick is uh, a professor of biology at Stonehill College. He is on the ABU's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee. We'll have to have you on later to talk about that committee because they do some really interesting work as well. Sure. Uh, but thanks for thanks for explaining to, to the lay birder what's going on with these AOS proposals. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to. I hope I hope it all made sense. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. I'm Greg Neese here, as always, with Birding Magazine editor Ted Floyd. Hey, Ted. Hey, Greg. How's it going? It's good. Hey, it's spring here, and we've got our first neotropical migrants showing up in the Great Lakes. But you know what? I want to talk about gulls. Gulls. Well, there's no time like the present, I suppose. <laughs> well, what 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 got me what got me thinking about it is, uh, I last month I was out with my birding buddy Amar Ayash and uh, we spent the day photographing white wingers on uh, a harbor on Lake Michigan and as Hang you on. know just a second Greg there are white wingers um, <laughs> so I've, I've heard of uh, right wingers and uh, left wingers and I think I know where you're going with white wingers but uh, let us know what you're talking about here with white wingers well in in our neck of the woods you know there's Glaucus and Iceland have white wingtips among our gulls, and uh, we we kind of push Glaucus off to the side because it's it's so recognizable. So the white wingers are basically Iceland and Thayers. Okay, so I'm pretty sh- I, I I was pretty sure that's what you were talking about. I just wanted to make clear that that white wingers are a, a kind of bird, in particular a, a kind of gull, and we're going to be talking about Thayer's gulls and Iceland gulls. And as I think you may know, Greg, but perhaps the rest of our audience doesn't know, uh, we're going to be featuring uh, coverage of these white wingers in the June issue of Birding. Uh, Amara Yasha, gull expert uh, in your uh, neck of the woods, is going to be edifying us about these white wingers and birding. In just a couple of months. 
Well, and speaking of Amar, like I said, he and I were out uh, last month, and we took hundreds upon hundreds of pictures of at least a dozen different Thayers and Kumleans gulls, which is the the Canadian race of uh, Iceland gull. And these birds were all adults from what appeared to at first look be a Glockup. Yeah, I said that wrong, didn't I? I know it's, it's like Ted Floyd's in the house. I got to be careful with that one. <laughs> Pronunciation of these tricky scientific names. It's all right. We'll we'll let you slide. <laughs> Glaucoides, <laughs> as in a real Iceland gull, um, and Kumlins uh, types, all the way through to a very you know dark wing-tipped Thayer's gull. And it's interesting to have seen them all together and and without uh with, with the full spectrum yeah you're starting to uh sing my song there to, to whistle my tune this idea of of gulls on the spectrum i uh I, I realize that many birds can sort of be put in a box that we can say a bird is a roadrunner or a dipper but yeah when it comes to gulls and i think i know where you're going with this here it's kind of better to sort of see them along a continuum a uh like a, a gradient at least with some gulls and i have a feeling that's where we're going to be going here with the uh the thayer's gull and the, and the iceland gulls there's some that look like icelands and some that look like thayers and some that are kind of in between well and it it depends on where you are um but um anyways we we really shouldn't get too far into this without getting amar ayash into the conversation who is standing by you know um i think i think more than than most other families of birds you know gulls remain some of the least understood birds in north america and you know, for for being an average birder, I think there's there's lots that that we can contribute from just you know simple field observations. So the 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 Iceland and Thayer's gulls that Ted and I were talking about earlier, um, it it's been announced that the AOS, that's uh, the American Ornithological Society, formerly a formerly AOU, uh, has proposed a, to lump the two species and something that you've been advocating for quite a while. Yeah, well, you know, first, to, to kind of put this in, in perspective, we're talking about some of the most poorly understood large white-headed gulls in North America. And, and that that's important to, to, to remember is that we don't have a lot of new data to, to, you know, suggest they should be lumped or that they should remain split. What What this proposal is about is much more or asking us to go back to 1961 and and reassess why Thayer's gull was ever removed from from a the herring complex and then b why it wasn't lumped with Iceland gulls back then. Ted, you 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 put your gulls in buckets. The challenge with with gulls is that uh, certain groups of them, these these white wingers as you call them, uh, look really really similar. You know, at least as sort of the, the undiscerning eye. And whether we're dealing with a an Iceland gull or a Thayer's gull, and you didn't mention it, but let's say a, a Glaucus gull or or, or maybe a, a herring gull, they all kind of look about the same. We call them large white-headed gulls. And the question that birders and ornithologists really get excited about is the question of species limits. Where does one species begin and another species end? And I'll just real quickly say that. 
in many cases, even with gulls, this is very, very, very straightforward. Yesterday morning out on the plains of Colorado, I saw a group of, of Franklin's gulls, as distinctive as can be at this time of the year. Nobody questions that the Franklin's gull is, a, is or isn't a Thayer's gull, let's say. It's completely different. Yeah, um, you know, on, on that note, Ted, um, here's a mortifying thought for you. Um, <laughs> if, if you read some of the literature on, on, on when Thayer's gull uh, was first identified by people like Brooks and Dwight, there, there are specimens taken from the core of Thayer's breeding range up in Ellesmere Island. Uh, we're talking 80 degrees north. And these are birds that were identified as Thayer's gulls, yet they have dark gray to pale gray wingtips, birds that we would never identify as a Thayer's gull here on the wintering grounds. Yet they're identified as Thayer's up in the Arctic because they're breeding in Thayer's um, um, colonies. And so when you talk about species limits and being able to accurately describe what it is we're talking about, that's part of the problem. We don't have any species limits. There are no delimitations for Thayer's gulls. We don't know how pale they could be. And, and on the flip side, we don't know how dark Kumli and I can be. And so there is this, this remarkable thing happening where um, we have species currently, yet um, you know, we're not always able to tell them apart. By the way, just for uh, general edification here, I'll say, since I'm not sure that it's been said here yet, that this uh, this fancy word, Kumli and I, or Kumlian's gull, that we've been bandying about here refers, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically to the North American population of the bird that we call the Iceland gull in a, in a global or whole Arctic sense. So, Kumli and I is what... Uh, ordinary people refer to as the uh, the Iceland gulls in, in North America. Did I kind of get that right? Or Yeah, the um, the Canadian subspecies that, that's highly variable from, from all white wingtips to black wingtips um, similar to Thayer's gulls. So it's a, it's a highly variable um, taxon um, that's likely, and this is the, the predominating thought on this, likely um, a result of some recent or ongoing hybrid event. You know, if, if you go out east, you don't see any, any or very, very few what we call slam dunk Thayer's gulls. And if you go to the west coast, obviously you do see a lot of slam dunk Thayer's gulls and very few what would be called Iceland gulls. Well, when you move into the western Great Lakes, it becomes a big mishmash of everything. And you know, in one, as as when we started this out, you know, in one flock with 12 different birds, you can see the, the whole spectrum from European-looking Iceland gull to a slam-dunk West Coast Thayer's gull. I'll just make a... Um Sort of a plea here for those of us who are uh, especially uh, basic, if you will, with, with gull identification that, and I'm speaking from a Colorado perspective here, that with a lot of these Thayer's gulls, especially the adults, um, another challenge really involves the, the herring gull. The, they, excuse me, the herring gull is an extremely variable bird, and uh, for us in Colorado at least, uh, the challenge isn't always Thayer's versus Iceland, it's also sometimes Thayer's versus herring. Sure, sure. I mean, this is this is something I struggled with when I first uh, took a serious interest in gulls is being able to even identify an adult Thayer's. Um, I was coming up with all these pale herrings with limited pigment on their wingtips, and I'd show my photos to people, and they'd say, "Oh no, that's that's 
that's a herring gull. You know, if, 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 if you think about this, Thayer's gull used to be a herring gull. It was a subspecies. Uh, it was considered a subspecies of herring by Jonathan Dwight, the father of gull ornithology, is the one who thought Thayer's gull should be uh, a subspecies of herring. And um, in his defense, he didn't really know the extent of variation in herring gulls, and what he thought he was looking at is pale-winged herrings with dark eyes, um, until McPherson provided evidence that there are no herrings and thayers that interbreed, and it was actually McPherson who should be uh, credited for that for that split from the herring complex. Well, as much as we tried to stay out of the deep weeds in this conversation, <laughs> that, that didn't happen. <laughs> but um, all right, so I think um, I think we we kind of understand how the how the the species or what may not be species. Uh, sort of relate to each other. How about identification, Amar? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's tough. It's it's hard to give uh, an unbiased um, you know point of view. Um, but I, I think for the most part, like you mentioned, Greg, we have slam dunk thayers. There's no denying that 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 generally um, winter on the Pacific, and we have a bunch of intermediate birds on the Great Lakes. And we have what are generally thought of as, as Coomley and I on the Atlantic. And I think for the most part, um, you know, with a little bit of practice, we can, we can identify these forms. Um, but, you know, as birders that, that like to list and count things, we almost, we almost use these, these classifications as proxies. So um, it's, it's going to be difficult, in my opinion, the, the proposal will be passed. I think they'll accept theirs under the Iceland complex. It's going to be difficult to to let go of a species. Um, and I think even after the lump, um, there's still going to be these identification questions and debates that that are that are ongoing uh, seemingly forever. Hey, uh, Greg, just a quick comment on identification, and I just don't want us to gloss over this. When we're dealing with herring gulls and Thayer's gulls and Iceland gulls, we have to acknowledge that we're dealing with multiple age classes during the winter months, especially. Well, of course, they're present all year round, but when we see these in, for most of us in the winter, you know, the challenge of identifying, recognizing, uh, declaring, however you want to put it, a, a Thayer's gull that is uh, one year old versus one that's four or five years old, I think is a a very different kind of, of challenge. And my, my mind is just sort of in a different place when I'm confronted with a, um, a bird at the end of its first year of life, so its second calendar year, versus an adult bird. Um, I don't know, I, from my perspective in, in Colorado, for a, a, a youngish bird, the question is often going to be Thayer's versus Iceland. For an adult bird, especially just one standing on the ice, the question is often Thayer's versus herring. So there's the uh, added layer of complexity here that we're mm -hmm. dealing with birds that vary quite a bit as they uh, go from one-year-old to two-year-old all the way up to four-year-olds when they uh, acquire their adult plumage. A absolutely. And those, you know, the, the, it's the, the late second cycle, third cycle birds that get really kind of lost in the flock because they, they don't have sort of the 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 solid field marks that you would that would draw attention to them uh, as the first cycle and adult birds do 
I'll also point out that in any sufficiently large group of gulls, no matter how big the, the group of gulls is, you're going to have a bunch of gulls that are actually very easy to identify and a few that probably stymie even the uh, the experts among us. So let's just picture, as you said, you're at the harbor and there are a thousand gulls out there. It's not too much question about the identification of most of the great black-backed gulls out there, or if a, a, a dainty Bonaparte's gull flies by, not much of an ID issue. So, And that's going to be, I don't know, depending on the flock, 80, 90, even 99% of the flock. And then no matter how sort of well-behaved the flock is, just a bunch of easy-to-identify birds, you'll still have something screwy in there. We're talking right now about Thayer's gulls, but Lord knows out here in Colorado, we get some California gulls that sure trip us up, and even sometimes some ring-billed gulls that we're not really too clear on. So any big flock of gulls is going to have a bunch of easy birds and a couple of challenging ones in it, too. All right, guys. Well, great. Thanks for uh, joining us, and talk to you later. All right. right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Greg. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like what we are doing here, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher or the Google Play Store and leave us a rating or, if you're feeling especially generous, a review. It helps people find us and gets our name out there. President of the ABA and executive producer of this podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band The Hangabouts does the music. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the American Bar Association, really, because that happens a lot. Uh, this past week was Be Kind to Lawyers Day, so this is a special shout out to our friends at the other ABA. You can reach me with questions or comments at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. See you next time.